0: You're listening to the UnSiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. UnSiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to UnSiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Justin Smith, who is a professor in history and philosophy of science at University of Paris, once Paris Diderot, now just Harry, I like how Diderot and Descartes merged for centuries. And he's also the author of a bunch of books. The latest book is called the internet is not what you think it is, which should be out soon. And the other books include nature, human nature and human difference, which is about uh, race, I think. And then divine machine, which is all about Leibniz, which is your, he's your go-to guy. And also these books, the philosopher history in six types and irrationality history of the dark side of reason. So welcome, Justin. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. Thank you very much for having me on. Well, I want to start with you know this book right here, which is the book called The Philosopher. And it's really an attempt to, I guess, define what, ex- I wouldn't say definition, but it's you're trying to delineate what is this thing that we call philosophy and, and who is this person that we call the philosopher. And as a historian of philosophy and science or philosophy of science, or you cross a bunch of different boundaries And I don't think you you come up with a conclusive answer as to what philosophical activity
0: is. Certainly no definitive answer as to who is to count as a philosopher, because yeah, the argument of the book is that the use of that designation changes so much from one historical period, one cultural or geographical context to another, that there is just no sense in trying to pin it down once and for all, but indeed it's as someone who's trained in analytic philosophy, which is an extremely ahistorical approach to what are taken to be timeless conceptual issues who then branched out into the study of the history of philosophy, where I immediately was struck by so many references to philosophers in early modern and Renaissance European texts that looked like nothing we would be prepared to call a philosopher today. Most importantly, I think if you did a kind of statistical analysis of the corpus of all European works between 1500 and 1800 and tried to determine how the term philosopher was being used, it was being used to describe first and foremost alchemists, people who were doing somewhat untrustworthy investigations of the hidden powers of nature, trying to figure out how to use uh, certain kinds of crystal in order to refrigerate, food substances, things like that. That's what philosophers did. That was the job of a philosopher circa 1600. And so why then when I see someone circa 2010, when I started thinking about this question, who says I'm a philosopher and that means I work on promising, you know, which is a typical thing you might hear today, or I work on the moral philosophy of nudges or something like that, why should I not be allowed to say back, I'm a philosopher, I work on refrigeration. The only thing is (laughs) that the context has changed, but I'm not at all convinced that what people are doing today is either more interesting or more true to the legacy of, the philosophical tradition as it extends back to Greek antiquity, if we compare it with, say, the Renaissance natural philosopher slash alchemist.
1: So, in today's world, I mean, the idea of a philosopher is, has become very professionalized. I think it's towards the end of the book where you talk about the idea of a professional philosopher, someone who has mm-hmm. credentials. So if you have, I was going to say, if you have a PhD in philosophy, but I mean, the concept of a PhD, as you, you mentioned, assumes that, you know, you can right. actually have yeah. a philosopher of, you know, biology or whatever. But now when yeah. you say you're a philosopher, it means that you are someone who is a member of the tribe. You've got like card carrying yeah. credentials, almost like if you can't say you're a lawyer simply because you are interested in understanding how people are constrained by society. To say that right. you're a lawyer means right. that you're you're capable of practicing within some official capacity. Not just
0: that you've read your Cicero, but yes, certainly The PhD, in fact, is a very revealing vestige of this older conception in which someone we today would call a geologist, for example, was a philosopher. Another is the journal that still exists that's called Philosophical Transactions published by the Royal Society of London, which was founded in 1666, and in which today you can read about the applications of CRISPR for genetic engineering and stuff like that, still published under the banner of philosophy. Again, just a vestige of an older time that people don't generally pause to think about for very long. But certainly the great transformation and the death of the term natural philosophy as a category, and indeed the same period in which in the 1830s we witness the first appearance of the term scientist, this is the same period in which universities are undergoing a new disciplinarization that sets the template that we inherited up until at least very recently, up until my time in grad school for what the discipline of philosophy is. And this has everything to do with institutional history and nothing to do with what philosophy is, right? And that's part of what I wanted to show in the book. Not necessarily because I want to explain explode the discipline of philosophy as it's being practiced. And in fact, it's being exploded anyway by certain dynamics of our current financial reality, our financial and political realities. In any case, it's being transformed beyond recognition, the discipline of philosophy as we speak. So it didn't take my historical investigations to make that happen, but I was just trying to say, look, we can turn to history to recover old lost ideas about what philosophy might be and could perhaps be again, because I'm someone who in fact thinks, and this comes from my kind of primary orientation as a specialist in the history and philosophy of science, I'm someone who in fact thinks that philosophy does very well and does very interesting things when it's very closely attuned to conceptual problems that emerge in science. But more than that, also when it shows a kind of attention and you might even say love for the objects of science, like black holes and Whales and oceans and whatever else is out there in the world. And for the past few centuries, these are things that philosophers have denied being directly interested in. It differs from subdiscipline to subdiscipline. You'll find more direct interest claimed for, in the case of black holes, than of whales. But in generally speaking, over the past 200 years, philosophers have been trained up to pretend that whatever the things in the world happen to be, we're not interested in them because we're interested in talking about things at the most general level, at a level where whatever there is in empirical reality could have turned out to have been very different.
1: So this idea that all of what we now think of as the sciences descended from this concern with the world which was distinguished from mm-hmm. theology right so you know it's right. hard for us to imagine that 99 percent of what we have available to study at a university today probably represented 10 percent of the curriculum you know at a at a right. medieval university yeah, yeah right, but, right but this did that yeah, but right, that right. But, but that idea of philosophy the non-theological i mean that's that itself was a newer concept because as you point out when you go back to aristotle it was poetry and philosophy were aligned with one another as distinguished from history or history was the focus on the oh right right, right, philosophy was possible
0: aristotle does say that philosophy is in at least one respect more aligned with poetry than with history and that is namely that philosophy like poetry ranges over the possible that is to say things that both are and are not the case Mm -hmm. poetry ranges freely over all of these, whereas history, at least for Aristotle, though this is only taking shape in the period history is supposed to be as they say, just the facts, but still for Aristotle. That he would exclude history, but he does see what we call science, the investigation of empirical reality, as also very much part of the philosophical endeavor. He's extreme about this. He says that you can go to the tide pool and pick up like a sea anemone and look at it. And the appropriate thought you should be having is, and here he quotes Heraclitus, here to dwell, gods, right? Which is to say, in a sense, I can do my theology going in either direction. I can start from the unmoved mover and work down to sea anemones, mm-hmm. or I can start with sea anemones and work up to the ultimate being. So Aristotle is as free and capacious in his understanding of philosophy as I think as you can possibly be, right? One of the problems that you mentioned in the book I could identify with a lot, which was the bookshelf
1: classification problem. And as soon as you started mentioning that, I just started having all of these flashbacks. Every time I I move house, I'm confronted with this problem. And I studied intellectual history. And I think the intellectual history perspective is one where you don't really recognize a distinction between what we might think of as a literary or a non-literary approach to things. And so if I have a Diderot on the same shelf as I'll have Lawrence Stern, right? Not just because Diderot wrote Rambo's Nephew or wrote things that might be seen as fiction or Hume with dialogues. I mean, I've always thought of Shakespeare as probably the most important philosopher of the, of the Renaissance. And I always thought of Plato as a novelist, right? Or a playwright. Yeah. Do historians do that more than others? Because, I mean, philosophers, I don't think if you go to a philosophy class now at a university, you're going to be yeah. studying Shakespeare. You might not even study Montaigne
0: because no, he's no. just not... Yeah, Mon- Montaigne is still too far out there. Yeah. It depends what context you're working in, what tradition you're working in. But in a sense, the in mid-20th century analytic philosophy was so biased against the history of philosophy that those who were interested in the history of philosophy had to clean it up in order to smuggle it back into the, the conversation. And they did this by adopting an approach of what's sometimes called rational reconstruction. So the generation that included scholars like Margaret uh, Dowler Wilson, working on Descartes in the 70s, for example, was extremely careful to formalize Descartes' arguments, render them with a bunch of sentence letters, P's and Q's, instead of what Descartes was actually saying, and to represent them as only circumstantially or contingently connected to the fact that Descartes happened to live in 17th century France and be educated by the Jesuits and so on. And so when you package Descartes like that, the analytic philosophers of that generation were prepared to say, okay, I guess Descartes is some kind of middling, but still acceptable philosopher to include in the conversation. and. That's, it was with the dregs of that, that I entered grad school in the 90s, but in a period when things were starting to loosen up. But I was repeatedly told that there was too much non-philosophy in my dissertation because I was interested in some of the, let's say, the finer grain details about how microscopy worked in the 17th century, things like that. But there's a big problem now, and that is that I think in part over the past decade, with the new exigency of expanding the canon and finding previously suppressed voices within the canon, particularly women philosophers of the 17th century, this has had as a kind of side effect, not just an opening with respect to the genders of the authors, but also an incredible opening with respect to gender in another sense, namely genre, right? Because women philosophers in the 17th century very often wrote in the form of poetry or first personal essay, or to cite Margaret Cavendish, proto-science fiction. And so there's this new demand to find philosophy where we weren't detecting it before. That's coming down almost as a kind of administrative pressure where like philosophers, at least in the United States, are under pressure to do this. And ironically, for me, it's making them Open, but also somewhat inconsistent, because even though they're becoming more open about what can count as philosophy, they're still pretending there is a well, somewhere, a well defined demarcation such that John Locke is a philosopher and Lawrence Stern is not, right? Or such that Marsilio Ficino is a philosopher and Shakespeare is not. Whereas I've always been of the opinion that if you want to know what Descartes was saying, for example, if you want to really know, you don't clean up his arguments with formalizations, you just go and try to read everything that he read, which includes, for example, Don Quixote, right? And um, you just try to get as much of the same richness of references and orientation as the guy you're trying to understand had, right? So for me, this new opening, I'm happy to see it, but I'm also, I have to admit, smirking as I watch it. Why, though? I mean, if
1: there's certainly a generation of philosophers, I'm thinking like A.J. Ayer and others, Mm. that said, look, why would you ever want to read Aristotle even, right? I mean, in all the other sciences, you don't waste your time. How many people in a biology department now are going to go back and read Darwin? Why bother, right, when I can just read the latest journal article or textbook. And even in economics, the idea is if you, you should just focus on what's in the AER this year and what's in the QJE. And I remember I went to a talk with a colleague who's a senior microeconomist and he said, oh, I just discovered this fantastic guy named uh, Albert Hirschman. How could you be like in your sixties and not know who Albert Hirschman (laughs) is, right? Right, right. But there's no need to professionally, right? Mm -hmm. If you're just trying to move the ball forward, does it make sense to talk in terms of Progress in philosophy? Or are we just kind of chewing the cud over and over again? And even if we're doing that, like, why not just pick the people who've done it best and not waste our time with? Look at the pre Socratics. Like, come on, all the world is fire or something. Like, why would anybody want to read such nonsense?
0: Look, there's so many things I could say about this. You're going to have to cut me off if I talk for too long. There is a kind of respectable, but I ultimately think position called perennialism right? That is the idea that philosophy is a kind of timeless conversation with the great minds and that the great minds are relatively rare in history. You can count them on a few people's hands and that we don't progress so much as we get these remarkable ingenious prophetic, you might say, instances of ultra lucidity. And what we do in philosophy is place those minds in dialogue with one another, Plato, Kant, and so on. I disagree with that. I think that's a romantic idea that holds to a romantic idea of genius that's ultimately untenable. But I also am certainly not convinced. Like, A.J. Ayer was that philosophy is able to adopt or even plausibly imitate the model of progress in the positive sciences. And I think the results are disastrous when it tries to imitate progress in in literature, right? It's part of the anxiety of being categorized as a kind of hermeneutical or literary or interpretative endeavor, like literary studies, that was part of this desperate attempt to disguise itself as a science or a science like i mean that that is that is
1: still in in literary studies there are people that are take that position that the blockers have fallen from our eyes and everyone who came before us was under the you know false consciousness and deluded manipulated sure we're the paranoid people that can see through all the manipulation
0: Sure. Right. Yeah. I should, I'm not really well positioned to talk about the history of literary studies as an academic discipline. I'm better positioned to say, to tell you about the prejudices that philosophers have about that discipline. But (laughs) As for the pre-Socratics, here I can divulge what I take to be my extremely minority view but also the extremely and exclusively correct view. Otherwise, I wouldn't insist on it if I didn't sincerely believe this. It's true that Thales was wrong that all is water, and that Anaximenes was wrong that all is air, but because it's true that they were wrong, when you study what they said, You are a student of the truth. So studying wrong ideas, stuff that people got wrong in the past, is the study of true things. Well, Then all we need is, then we could just spend all day
1: on Twitter, I think, and get the same results.
0: Well, look, no, but certainly there could be a fruitful study of the diversity of views on social media. Yeah. But look, so... When you're studying, say, the claims that the pre-Socratics made about the nature of the cosmos, their wrong theories, the stuff that they got wrong because they didn't know about quantum mechanics or whatever, you're studying the range of representations of the world by human being. Now, this range of representations Has sometimes been seen as the purview of anthropologists who then from what look to the typical kind of person in the street Westerner to be very ignorant, confused ideas. Like, for example, that such and such, my cross cousins are related to kangaroos, whereas I'm related to crocodiles or some, you know, things like that. And that anthropologists here, the anthropologists try to decipher these curious statements in terms of the way they help the people who make them from the inside To structure the world and to give it meaning. And when they're doing that, they're not thinking, wait, is this guy's cross cousins? Are these guys cross cousins really related to kangaroos? They're trying to figure out how it gives the world shape and meaning. And so to some extent, my philosophical project has always been to invite people to study the history of philosophy in somewhat the same way. I don't care if Leibniz was right about things. I just certainly don't care if the pre-Socratics got nature. What I want to know is what this reveals to us about the range of representations of the world that of which human beings are capable and that has helped them to structure, structure that world and give it meaning. Does that make sense? Yeah, but that sounds very academic exercise, right? I mean, if you
1: think that philosophy is about figuring out how to live, so there's an approach which is that philosophy is practical and is about figuring out what you should be doing when you get out of bed in the morning, then this view of this anthropological approach, right? Does it, unless it illuminates or unless it helps to source modifications to your kind of view of the world going forward, how is it useful other than it was just curiosity? Oh, wow. Isn't it cool how the toilet works, right? It's not going to affect knowing how it works isn't going to affect how often you flush it or.
0: Yeah, but look for one thing. One thing is that we live in a world where we're side by side, neighbor by neighbor with people we don't understand, people who are strangers to us and of whom we're extremely suspicious. And this leads to constant conflict and one thing about this approach that I'm promoting is that it enables a kind of humility once you start to realize all of the delirious range of ways people have made sense of the world around them and still somehow manage to thrive, even though these ways are totally foreign from the way we make sense of the world. Right. And so that's, you know, one of the most urgent answers is that it's an incitement to intellectual humility, which I think is good. And I think helps people to live better in this world. But also, I think at a scientific level, it's extremely important to measure the precise range of variation of human cognitive practices, right? Because this helps us to know what human beings are doing simply in virtue of the fact that they're human being and what they are doing because they are living in a peculiar and exceptional cultural pocket. And the only way we can do this is by surveying what people believe and therefore paying attention to what the at the naive level we take to be false beliefs. Now, I think philosophy as an academic discipline has failed tremendously to discover interesting things about how we think because what it in fact ends up doing is reflecting on the way we not quay human beings, but we quay weird 21st century wealthy educated Americans take things to be. That is to say, philosophy ends up, as Nietzsche would put it, being, well, especially, anyway, moral philosophy, ends up being a kind of uh, guide to bourgeois manners. And let me just give you one example. I don't mean to target one person in particular, but there's an article by Liz Harmon, an analytic ethicist I particularly do not like. I do not like the, the article. I, I don't have any problem with Liz Harmon as a person, where she's trying to make an analytic ethical argument about abortion. And she makes the case that fetus has roughly the same moral status as a plant and therefore that abortion is permissible. And what I want to say when I see that as someone who's read plenty of ethnography and history and cross-cultural comparisons of the representation of the natural world is that plants can have any number of different moral statuses. Some plants are divine. Some plants are taboo. Some plants are the totem that's identical with your clan and so on and so on. Some plants you can destroy at will And so the idea that you can just... She might should have made an argument that they were weeds. Right, (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. fetuses are weeds. then, then,
1: Then that would have baked in the normative aspect.
0: The idea that from within our culture, without knowing anything about other cultures and the way they evaluate the variety of things in the world around us, that from within our own culture, you can make these kind of a priori determinations about the moral status of things is just naive as hell. And it's what philosophy does. And that's why since that 2016 book, the one we've been talking about, That's also kind of my declaration of independence. Yeah, I came up in academic philosophy, but whatever, I've got a permanent position now and I'm going to spend the rest of the time I have available to me talking openly about why I think it's not an adequate approach.
1: The most interesting and provocative parts of that book was really about should we think of philosophy more like ballet or like dance? Oh, yeah. And you alluded to Saul Bellow made that provocative claim that there was mm. no Tolstoy of the Zulus, right? Yeah, and right. Yeah, I think right. there's two ways you could interpret that. If you're saying that there's no like narrative, literary, or reflective sensibility, then, you know, that's clearly bigoted and wrong. But if you're saying that particular Western art form is a Western art form, then, yeah. you know, there's nothing. Particularly disturbing about it, it's just an empirical yeah. claim that's yeah. fairly easy to support. And even when you reference like the pre-Socratics as philosophers, but if somebody says exactly the same thing, say in New Guinea, yeah. you know they're not philosophers; they're like folk religionists,
0: right? Obviously, I'm the Socrates is not. Uh, Literate philosopher. That's also another very important dimension of this whole question. There's a strong strain of purely oral philosophy in among the most paradigmatic figures of the classical period, whom we're ready to count as philosophers. And indeed, as you say, the pre Socratics resemble much more the kind of sages of indigenous traditions, than they resemble say Mandarin hair professor like Hegel in the 19th century or something like that. And as for whether we should treat philosophy as being more like dance or more like ballet, that is more like something that people have simply insofar as they're human beings or rather as a particular expression of that universal capacity that emerges in a particular time and place, I think we could go either way. But what surprises me, especially when I see so much, again, politically motivated scrambling right now for people to prove in academic philosophy departments that they're taking non-Western philosophy seriously, it's by no means clear that it's an attribution that these non-Western cultures want or need, right? That is to say that they have philosophy too. And in fact, there are wonderful scholars. I can cite, for example, Anne Chang here in Paris, who's done research on the 19th century ad hoc creation of the idea of Chinese philosophy. And you would think, surely it's just a matter of respect that we include Chinese philosophy in our introduction to philosophy courses and so on. But in fact, in order to construct Chinese philosophy in the 19th century, there was a lot of, I want to say, institutional violence that had to be done to the categories through which China had traditionally conceptualized its disciplinary endeavors. For one thing, the learning, the mastery of the works of antiquity had to be violently separated away from the practical skill of calligraphy. Why? Because from the European point of view, calligraphy or being good at writing beautifully the ideas that you're seeking to master has nothing to do with mastering the ideas themselves. And if China is going to have something to call philosophy, we better crack these two apart from one another. Then the point here is that it's by no means clear That it's a matter that this is a term of approval to extend to other groups of people. It's just as you wouldn't want to say, oh, no, the Zulus do have thousand page long novels and have had them for centuries. That would just be empirically false. And so what happened with philosophy in the 19th century is something more like saying, Not just that the Zulus have oral tradition that could qualify as literature, but in fact the Zulus have novels too. It's just that the novels are produced in a different format than those that are unique to the European publishing industry. So all of this is to say it's a particular expression of the arrogance of academic philosophy professors in the West that they think it's a simple easy task and a matter of simple respect for non-western intellectual traditions that we can just go and find something someone said in these traditions and call it philosophy and teach it in our introduction to philosophy course alongside Descartes.
1: Could you teach Indian philosophy without, without doing yoga?
0: That's obviously another really good example. The fact that with some exceptions, there's like various neoplatonic, theurgic exercises. And you could also cite, for example, St. Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises and so on as examples, broadly speaking in Western tradition that require you to do something with your body. But for the most part in the history of Western philosophy, the body is a drag and an unfortunate kind of weight on the pure exercise of the mind. So whatever you're doing with your body when you philosophize, just keep the rest of us in ignorance of it. We don't want to know about it. Whereas obviously, if you look at comparable traditions like yoga, there is a very elaborate co-evolution of the physical and the intellectual undertaking. They have to be done together. There are other Indian traditions in what is often called philosophy, other Indian darshanas that don't implicate the body either, but this is a very good example. You wouldn't, by the, the standards of let's say, the original authors of the Yoga Sutras, you would not be doing yogic philosophy if you were just studying the Yoga Sutras while lying on your couch and doing nothing more, right? But there's still, I mean,
1: philosophy, it seems like in a very important part of how we think of philosophy is this universal aspect to it, that it really does kind of rise above the particular, which means that the inherent bias is the belief that you can understand these other philosophies or understand these other perspectives. I think of Clifford Geertz, right? I think of him as a philosopher, right? But he had this view that it's possible at some level to understand the the architecture of meaning within a world that's different from your own. And you know, you can find the the universals, but you can also understand the particulars. But at some level, I think a lot of people would say you just can't understand things that are radically different. And you may not be able to understand the experience of even your sister or your, you know, your mother. And I think the philosophy is always pushed back against that view. But then you hear people say, well, you know, I've got my philosophy and, and you've got your philosophy. And you mentioned this in the book that we were, you know, that this is language that we all toss around. Can you be a philosopher and talk in terms of your philosophy and my philosophy, even if they're completely at odds with one another.
0: Let me go back first to Clifford Gertz, because, you know, he's a, I mean, he's a wonderful thinker and a, and a wonderful anthropologist, though I think in his classic work, I'm thinking of the inter- interpretation of cultures, he comes out very explicitly in favor of the view that anthropology is a hermeneutical discipline. It's about interpretation and it's not about employing anything like the scientific method. I've been in my universalist interests, more attuned to developments in what's sometimes called the cognitivist approach that looks for the universal parameters of human thought through empirical studies, well informed by previous scientific research. And I'm particularly a fan of scholars like G.E.R. Lloyd and his 2007 book Cognitive Variations that really gives a meta-study of all of the existing research on differences of color perception from one culture to another, differences in counting and differences in botanical classification and so on, and really take seriously the idea that we can really find the answer we can figure out just how much we're alike and how much we're different you can to some degree
1: try on these different perspectives mm-hmm. right so you can say yeah. what is it like to some degree there's no way that i can stop seeing blue and green and red right. but if i imagine what would it be like if i just saw shiny versus dull like i can kind yeah, of yeah, yeah, practice yeah, that sure, and try it out sure. and yeah if i yeah, start yeah, thinking yeah. in one two and many like yeah. plasticity and maybe if you yeah. take a few mushrooms or something you could try it even better right
0: yeah i've been studying a language for the past few years i won't go into detail about it other than to say that the words for blue and green are the same in this language except that sometimes if you want to clarify you can say grass blue and grass blue is obviously as opposed to sky blue right which is to say green grass blue is green and this is a bit of a kind of an opportunity to think about the salience of the natural environment and of cutting the grass in this culture and the way grass manifests itself as like the sky and so on. And I often feel like I'm kind of thinking my way into what it might be like to not have that lexical distinction at the outset. But I know I, I can only get so far and that this will always be a, an exercise of the imagination. And that's where Gertz comes in, because yes, it is, we are using our imagination. And so I'm kind of... Uh, uh,
1: I mean, literature, poetry, metaphor, literature, these help you to re-architect your salience and reconceptualize yeah, yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So I try to move between the scientistic cognitivist approach to the study of human diversity on the, at the one extreme and the purely imaginative at the other extreme. What I definitely disapprove of is the dead-enderism of what I take to be the dogmatic defenders of standpoint epistemology which is very popular in uh, anglophone philosophy right now that is the idea that you are so trapped in your own community's presuppositions and values and priorities that you're literally incapable of putting yourself in someone else's head and Typically, that point of view is invoked in a kind of defeatist way. Don't even try. Whereas my view is, yeah, you might never actually get there, but there's a real need for the sake of our well-being and thriving together to keep trying and to see how far you can get.
1: Yeah, I like how you point out that there, even if if there was no... Tolstoy of the Amazon. There was almost certainly a Socrates yeah, of the right, Amazon. Right, right. And I like how the, the yeah. analogy you made to law, because if mm. you mentioned like, is there a, can there be a law? Can a culture have law if it has no written documents? Of course it can, right? If mm. it, Britain has a constitution without having yeah. Yeah. a dot piece of paper, right? It's just about the kind of rules that govern what can and cannot be done and so forth. But I'm wondering, you have another, you mentioned also that the idea of a philosopher is a pejorative in many ways, mm. right? And uh, we talk about somebody as philosophizing, right. whereas doing philosophy yeah. is now what the academics yeah. will say they're doing. And And you mentioned that like, the term philosophe was this was someone who was kind of a time waster. But then the French yeah. would make fun of the Anglo-Saxon philosophers. So under what circumstances do philosophers get a bad name? And why is it that some people think that this is a wasteful activity? And I guess the corollary to that is that in today's academic climate, every academic discipline has to justify themselves somehow. I think in Britain, you have to prove that you're going to somehow add to GDP. I'm not sure if, you know, the philosophers, I mean, you point out that if we can help people to understand different perspectives, this presumably yeah. would improve the lot of humankind. But does it translate directly into increased GDP? I'm not so sure.
0: No, I mean, I mean, philosophers are intrinsically disreputable people. It's part of the definition of the term, I think. They're parasites, they hang around, they do nothing but think, and they're bad for society. And I think it's because of this that no matter what happens in the history of philosophers and philosopher-like people, the term inevitably becomes suspicious and people try to find new ways to redescribe it. So indeed, Heraclitus is the first to have used the term philosopher as an agentive noun and He used it as an insult to mock people. Recent scholarship has suggested that what precisely is meant here is that they're lovers of wisdom, not that they have a wisdom that they love, but they are desirers of wisdom that they lack. It's like an
1: esthete. An esthete is also like a parasite, right? Someone who is beauty, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, esthetes are parasites in another way, but so... The thing about the term philosopher, though, is that the philos part of it, the lover part, might better be translated not as lover of wisdom, but rather something like wannabe wise person in the sense of wannabe that was around in the 80s or 90s. Something you want, but you don't got. And so philosophers were idiots in antiquity. They became weird, disreputable alchemists in the Renaissance. And you have various alternative insults that pop up like philosophaster. And philosophe is an insult that emerges in the 18th century to mock French intellectuals in the English context. But in France as well, it also just means frivolous people who like to hang around the salon and be fashionable. And in the 20th century, Anglophone analytic philosophers try to escape the negative connotations of the term, of at least of the verbal form, by saying, oh no, we don't philosophize. We do philosophy. And you still find the leading Oxford philosopher, Timothy Williamson, he has a book that's supposed to popularize philosophy called Doing Philosophy. And to him, this sounds really reputable. To me, it's a bit of a trying to, well, I- I'm thinking of the phrase put makeup on a pig, but I, I don't quite mean that. I'm trying to disguise. Uh, it's, it's branding. To, right. Trying to disguise the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Williamson has been using that phrase all his career. He doesn't experience it as branding, but it's a long historical process of branding that has tried to overcome the negative connotations. So if I can contribute anything, I want to, before I leave this career, I want to give the phrase to do philosophy, negative connotation too. So people will have to start saying it another way because I hate it when people say that.
1: You know, when we think about the academics, I mean, one of the goals of this podcast is to promote interdisciplinarity. And when we organize our academy, according to these domains, and we carve out this thing, we, we call it kind of philosophy, but the philosophers are forging connections with all of these other domains, whether it be cognitive science or whether it be you know, machine learning or whether it be anthropology, why don't we just scrap the whole disciplinary endeavor and move to like cross-functional teams, right? This is what they do in business now. Yeah. You get rid of all the the marketing department, yeah. you have all these cross-functional yeah. teams like that just tackle kind of specific mm-hmm. challenges.
0: That sounds good in principle. And look, I would love nothing more than to be able to retire from philosophy. I need my salary, so I have to keep Being a professional philosopher, I would love to be able to say, sorry, guys, I'm not a professional philosopher anymore. Don't describe me that way. So I would love to do that. I would love to get out of the discipline personally, because it would enable me to be more intellectually honest and just do what I want to do, which is not disciplinarily defined. And so you would think that I would like the idea of scrapping disciplines. But in fact, and in my personal experience that I could go on and on about, what inevitably happens when disciplines are scrapped is that this is seized upon cynically and in bad faith by profit seeking forces to constrain people currently working within the disciplines to contribute to GDP or somehow to produce what the European granting agencies call deliverables and to really debase themselves, to drop their intellectual standards in order to work in teams that share no no common thread of interest at all other than getting that damn grant money. And if that's what's meant by moving beyond disciplinary divisions. I want no part of it. I, want to re- I definitely want to retire. But if what's meant is the freedom to range intellectually without compromising your intellectual standards, then absolutely, that's what I'm here for. It's just that that's not going to happen under the present, under the model, the economic models that presently reign in university. And now, I mean, the
1: way you're evaluated oftentimes is publications and citation counts. And this made me, it reminded me of a quote in your new book where he said that the internet is, and you've got on Twitter, you've got a bunch of um, socialists ranting against the system, but what they're actually doing is competing in this gigantic video game to rack up points in some world run by Silicon Valley warlords or something
0: like that's actually a quote from an anonymous Twitter account. No one knows who the author is. She goes by the name Alice from Queens. This is an unusual book project in that I'm quoting Twitter shit posters <laughs> in a book published with Princeton University Press, which is, I think, in some ways a breakthrough, but is also probably going to be more and more common <laughs> in the coming years. But Absolutely. You did mention that you spent, at least for some of your lockdown period,
1: you spent more time on Twitter than in reading books.
0: Yeah. In a way, it was research. Yeah. In, in a way, it was research. In a way, it was depression. You can look at it both ways, but I'm very familiar with how Twitter works. It's my case study in the book because I don't. I used to use Facebook. I closed it about four years ago. I've tried to sign up for Instagram. I still can't figure out how it works, where I'm supposed to put the text that I want to write. So I just never use it. And then, of course, in a sense, part of my argument is that whether our various online platforms admit it or not, they're all basically social media at this point at like academia.edu is a social media platform fraudulently presenting itself as a kind of research tool but twitter i have come to say even more strongly than alice from queens is roughly speaking something like a deliberative discourse themed video game in the same way that Grand Theft Auto is a car chase themed video game. You are just kidding yourself if you post some political view or uh, support for some political cause on Twitter and believe that you're engaging in deliberative democracy in the public space or something like that. That's not what you're doing. You're playing a video game. And that's how it's going to be for as long as the only option for deliberative democracy we have is one that's owned by private companies with nothing but a profit motive. And that's just obvious, but people keep pretending they don't see it you
1: say in the book that you don't want to be considered a a luddite and and you do offer a very nuanced i think story but at the end of the day i mean in a way you are a luddite right the technology is you believe well i guess that's not fair because in retrospect i think that the looms improved the life (laughs) improved the quality of life at the end of the day in retrospect we can say that lud was wrong but this isn't it just that we Maybe there's just some growing pains here. And if you look at the introduction of the printing press, right, we had these things called the wars of religion that may have come at, and then we figured it out and settled down. So could it be that this sort of parasitizing our attention is just, we just haven't figured it out yet? Or what is it that categorically different about the internet as opposed to other mechanisms that have sought after our attention in the past? From religious sermons to you know, yeah. sports to gossip to all the other stuff.
0: Look, these could just be growing pains. I think things are going to get worse before they get better. I think if you see the wars of religion, and that's a very good analogy, if you see the wars of religion as the impact some several decades down the line of the arrival of the printing press... I think our wars of religion are still to come. (laughs) The wars that come from the internet are still just building up. And so that's very disconcerting. I'm particularly interested, as someone who's primarily an early modernist, indeed, on thinking about historical parallels with what the Harvard book historian Ann Blair calls the early modern information explosion. She has a wonderful book called too much to know. And indeed she thinks that even though the actual, uh, data stored by all of the books in Europe, circa say 1650 was just disappearing. You and I probably,
1: we could have actually, that was like the last time you could be a true Renaissance person, right?
0: We could have had our iPhone read them all anyway. Even though it was vanishingly small, it was still enough to freak people out and shake everything up and start wars and get people burned at the stake and so on and yeah we're going through the burning at the stake moment and it looks chaotic and crazy but it might all in the end be for the good so i'm not a luddite i do think however that it is absolutely going to continue to get worse as long as either the model of totalitarian china Or the model of profit-driven private companies currently dominating the way we think about the possibilities for a connected world. As long as those continue to dominate and rather than social media being truly subjected to democratic oversight, things are going to continue to get worse. In terms of the topsy-turvy social upheaval of social mobbing that is, in a sense, ruining everything, you can't do anything in the way you could have expected to do it 10 years ago, and in terms of the universal surveillance that these new technologies are affording these things are just going to keep getting worse and worse until there's real democratic oversight. And that's going to be extremely hard. And I think that it's only going to come after a period of worsening of the conditions of our social life together up to a point where people just won't take it anymore. And that, that could be the rest of our lifetime. I think you call
1: for kind of a new philosophy of attention, Certainly, there's been a lot of research into the psychology of attention, into the the kind of neuroscience of attention. I've spoken to a number of people on this podcast about that. But you call for kind of a a philosophy of attention you know, what would look like and, and would there be some continuity between this and other things that we've been t- thinking about for decades? I love the example that you give, you know, you talk about hunting and you talk oh, about, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. what constitutes proper hunting, right? So yeah. it's like there's this type of hunting that people do where they shoot groundhogs from their basement. I don't know if you're familiar with this, okay. <laughs> but there's like a gun that's set up somewhere in in Iowa and people they their Basements in Brooklyn can essentially log oh, on and, and, and just you know, sh- shoot these groundhogs when they come in wow. range.
0: Okay, that's not cool. To my, sorry, I said that's cool a second ago, and I just wanted to take that back. <laughs> but and I think you're arguing that.
1: Well, I think it, you would say that's probably that's not really hunting. Hunting is m- more than just the procurement of meat. There's something more to no. it.
0: Yeah, I like this example because, first of all, I've been a vegetarian for 30 years and I would never kill an animal, but I like using the example anyway because it throws readers for a loop, and I'm quoting the work of the kind of proto-environmentalist Aldo Leopold from the 1940s, his famous Sand County Almanac, where he's talking about duck hunters who become over-reliant on gadgets. And what struck me in Leopold was the use of this word gadget, which I had not previously known, seems to come from French, I think, in the late 19th century related to gage or what you can trade in a pawn shop. And it skyrocketed it's in usage during World War II and the years around World War II, and then it virtually disappears in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and then it starts spiking again with the internet revolution, the, the, the word gadget. So I loved that Leopold used it for duck hunting because it made me think of Jeron Lanier's You Are Not a Gadget. Leopold wants to say You Are Not a Gadget or don't think your gadgets can hunt the ducks for you. But he also says something very interesting, which is that each person is going to have to make the determination on their own. See, this is also not at all Luddite. Each person is going to have to come to the honest determination of where the kind of devices for helping you to make sounds that resemble those of ducks are crossing over from an enhancement of your innate hunting capacities to a perversion and a trick That reveals something more like dishonesty in relation to the dock, right? Now, where this boundary is, I don't know, but I think it's very interesting. Also, one of my favorite books is Isaac Walton's, I think, 1656 book called The Complete Angler. And it's a philosophy of fishing You don't Um, want to throw a
1: hand grenade in the lake.
0: That's that's not a way to do it. But Walton has just wonderful reflections on... How fishing and philosophizing are alike. And hunting is a bit different from fishing in that you can throw the fish back. You can't throw the duck back once you've shot it, or at least that would be really even worse <laughs> than keeping it. But still, historically and indeed prehistorically, hunting is a kind of, let's say, primordial encounter with with the natural world. And indeed, there's the groundhog hunting in Iowa via the internet from Brooklyn is not an encounter with the natural world. And so clearly, I don't know where to draw the line exactly, but it's somewhere between that and catching the the groundhog with your bare hands. Now, we know that Basically all indigenous people who build their lives around an economy of hunting, when firearms are introduced, they're happy to take them. They're like, yeah, this is great. This makes our job easier. So it's not like that primordial encounter was something that was, that the real hunters were never ready to compromise on. Um, All this is to say, I think, the that Leopold's analysis of using gadgets for duck hunting extends quite well to the analysis of our use of smartphones. There's a way to use them to enhance your thriving, whatever it is you do as a human being. And there's a way that it perverts and disrupts your thriving. And at present, again, because of... The economic incentives built into basically every corner of the internet we typically explore, at present, the internet is fundamentally ill-equipped for us to be able to use it to cultivate our faculty of attention. It's filled with distractions because what it effectively is a giant attention extraction engine, right? I've been teaching data science
1: and strategy for 10 years and I never heard this term. I'm going to use it.
0: I mean, I just saw it pop up somewhere on Twitter. I don't know who said it, but it's absolutely right. I mean, we are having data extracted from us the way milk is extracted from dairy cows. And if you agree with some people like Yves Citon, a French theorist who wrote a wonderful and, book. And like the cows, I mean, we are
1: paid for our our milk, yeah. to be clear. But I think the cow, I remember I talked to Peter Singer and I said, well, look, those cows have a pretty good life. And he was like, yeah, but is that the life that you would want?
0: Yeah. yeah. I said, I wouldn't, but I think yeah, most right, people would
1: right, choose right. that over the life out in a Savannah where you got to deal with hyenas and so forth, right?
0: Yeah. And of course, there's a fairly plausible and compelling theory of co-domestication of livestock and humans, that the process of domestication has been, let's say, so to speak, a deal between the species rather than (laughs) simply us domesticating another species. Anyhow, the idea of us as data cows, if you look at work of people like this French thinker Yves Citon who in 2014 wrote a book called for an ecology of attention. He takes this data extraction or attention extraction metaphor very seriously. It is world's most powerful economic industry. Just like silver and gold mining are what explains the huge transformations in The world in the 16th and 17th centuries so given that this is this industry that emerged almost out of nowhere within our lifetimes we really need to be wary of it but indeed simply looking at the technology itself There's absolutely, I compare this to the history of cinema, the Lumiere brothers short silent films circa 1895 were typically less than a minute long around 70 years later. You have Andy Warhol making Empire, which is more than eight hours long, just an eight hour exposure of the Empire State Building. And it's not like that was a blockbuster, but that showed that at least some people were thinking, okay, we can use this technology for marathon exercises of attention, right? That's something the cinematic art with its accompanying technology is good for, right? And certainly there might be ways to carve out spaces within this economy of attention extraction that is the internet and stare at something for eight hours and thereby cultivate your faculty of attention. That's what you feel like doing it's just that for the moment and it, again this might just be a matter of being in growing pains for the moment that seems far away indeed from the actual uses of what you could call the phenomenological internet you know i do i'm
1: moving a lot of my content online my course content everyone says look you can't have more than 90 second videos <laughs> Like, you can't do that i'm yeah. like well I think you can, but I love your how you also mentioned TikTok as the revenge for the Opium Wars.
0: <laughs> I think that was just a, a footnote from an article in a newspaper from Yale Ferguson not so long ago. It's not my favorite historian, but seemed apropos enough to to warrant a footnote. But indeed, I, I think I expect that in the near future we will be seeing mass class action suits of the sort we saw against Big Tobacco. And that this will be increasingly conceptualized in terms of a public health issue and addiction. I hope so.
1: The other analogy you have is that the person who is kind of walking past Leibniz's window unthinkingly is the automaton. And philosophers have always emphasized the idea of the the reflective life and making conscious choices. And you talk about in Pinin, the Nabokov uh, book about just... Someone, character refusing to just read the newspaper. It's very hard to say no. It's very hard to peel yourself away from the pharmacological and internet sources of addiction that exist out Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's kind of where the philosophers can pay for themselves. And in the end of the book, the philosopher, you have this... um, you talk about this experience you had, which I, where you would sell your services as philosopher in yeah. cafes in Paris. Now, this yeah, to me yeah, yeah, is yeah. fascinating because you talk about the courtier, which is the, the Aristotle in Chinese philosophy. There's also a philosopher that would, you know, advise the emperor. I spend my time advising the folks that are essentially either running or about to run these large technology companies. I always think that what I do is philosophy, right? Like when I'm yeah. teaching people how to interpret data or I'm teaching them how to manage companies or how to understand people or or understand thinking or to learn about biases and is that any different from I mean when you're sitting yeah. in the cafe and talking about the meeting I presume you're talking about similar things right how to think and how to make yeah, inference yeah, yeah. and how to make choices and so forth
0: look that was a bit somewhat facetious on my part I mean it's all true but I was indeed hard up for funds and I wanted to exploit that peculiar stereotype of paris in
1: particular there are um, these people in silicon valley now who are saying like they'll give you a teach you how to be a stoic yeah. for 500 bucks an hour though this is yeah. like a thing
0: like, yeah okay yeah but that i wanted to get back to that part of what i wanted to do in that part of in that chapter about the courtier was to suggest that look At the end of the day, all of you academic philosophers are a bunch of sophists in the sense that Socrates understood by this, right? People who are willing to accept pay uh, for conversation. It's just that universities have managed to set themselves up, at least for a time, as legitimate looking enough to effectively launder the money that they pay the academic philosophers in the form of a salary to appear as though they're something more respectable than sophists. But I think that legitimacy is fading fast and everyone is scrambling. There's a true Legitimation crisis for academics. I think anyone who's been in the field as long as I have for more than twenty years has certainly been around long enough to see what you know is experienced as collapse of legitimacy, and what this means is that we might very well be reverting to what has been the default model for intellectuals for most of history, which is you go and. Directly find some rich person to sponsor you. And this is what Leibniz happily did. This is what Diderot happily did. That's what I'm doing on my Substack, by the yeah. way. Yeah, I, I, and my friend Wesley Yang has a wonderful term for this. He calls his subscribers Nano Medici. Patronage is. Really, again, the default model and the money laundering institutions we call universities are a historical blip. And so part of what I want to do, and of course, the other possibility is that you do what the real Socratic followers or the real followers of Socrates did, who are the cynics, and you say, I don't need any money when Alexander the Great comes and offers you a great fortune. I'll give you anything you want like Diogenes the Cynic, you tell him, okay, get out of my life, right? And That's it. And that's another way to be a philosopher. And we're inclined to think, okay, Diogenes the real deal. He's keeping it real. Whereas Leibniz, Leibniz sold out. But let's be honest, by that criterion, The vast majority of us are sellouts because we're all just looking to pay our bills and have a bit of money put away so that we don't die on skid row. (laughs) right? (laughs) And if you're going to, I think when academics criticize people who are increasingly turning to Patreon, that's because they are in effect singing the swan song. Of a dying form of legitimacy, I think. They're on their way out. Justin, has been great. You probably have to go to bed
1: soon in <laughs> Paris, but...
0: It's 8.30, um, it's dinner time, <laughs>
1: yeah. But I'll make, be sure to reference your substack on the site. But anyway, lots of great books here. The, the Philosopher, yeah. we didn't even touch on Irrationality. Maybe we can uh, do that yeah. next time. And also, The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, which will be out soon, so check it out. Yeah, in March 22. Thanks so much for joining yeah. me. Hope to see you in person soon when you come back to California.
0: Thank you. Can't wait. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the UnSiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.